You're listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Good morning. morning. (laughs) Wow. We both finally started at the Uh, same time. Yeah. It's been however many episodes that we've never done that, right? Correct. As a first. It is a first. This is a podcast first. Wow. Hope y'all didn't skip the banter today because you would have missed a (laughs) podcast first. Oh, man. Right here. Feels strange. It does. Like Mm. Doctor Strange. (laughs) Right? I've not seen it yet as of this recording. Just let me know. And I'll get the ticket. That's right. Because I am excited. I am looking forward to it. I will be the voice in the wilderness saying <laughs> that I had a great time. <laughs> Low a voice crying out, Dr. Strange is great. Yeah, I had a great time. Big I've fan. heard good things. Yeah. See, here's the thing. It's so difficult to gauge public reception to like to the point that I kind of just give up usually. I'm just like, yeah. I, I can't tell if people are enjoying this or not. I can't tell. But I right. but I did. Yeah. Or didn't. Depends on the property. But I feel like I've seen complaints. Like, this is why this detail didn't work. I'm like, what are you doing with your time? <laughs> Are you saying that because it's going to get you more views on YouTube because it's negative? I don't know. I had a really good time. I'm not the only one because when I talk to people in real life, mostly they also had a good time. Yeah. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the deal is, but I like it a lot. I actually, speaking of gauging public reception, learned something interesting recently reading a Malcolm Gladwell book. Have you oh, heard yeah. of Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. He wrote a book called Blink, okay. which is about basically how we think without thinking. So it's like subconscious, snap judgments, mm. that kind of stuff. But he talked about how sometimes market testing is the worst indicator really? of how something will be received as an example. So you could overlay this, I'm sure. And, and actually he did. He overlaid it specifically on like TV shows. Mm-hmm. But the principle goes like this, that back in the, what was it, 80s, 90s, that Pepsi was on pace to outpace Coke okay. in sales and all this stuff, right? And the people at Coke, of course, are freaking out. And most of this was based on sip testing. Okay. So what would happen is Pepsi would take... X amount of Coke enthusiasts, people who said they preferred Coke over Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And then they would put them in a blind taste test situation where they'd pour Coke into one glass, Pepsi into another, have them sip test and say, which one do you prefer? And it's like, oh, I prefer this glass. And like, oh, lo and behold, every time it's Pepsi. Oh, wow, that's right? fun. So Coke is freaking out. They're like, we have to figure this out, right? Like people yeah. are saying Pepsi's sweeter, da-da-da-da-da. So long story short, you get new Coke. And of course, uh-huh. the thing was is that during the sip testing, new Coke was a wild success. Everyone who tried it loved it, and mm-hmm. it outpaced Pepsi every time. So the Coke executives are like, people are going to love this. New Coke. And so they make the announcement, they put it out there, and it fails miserably. Yeah, it is a, a disaster. A it about sank Coke, right? I mean, it's just bad, <laughs> oh, bad. Man. Well, it turns out that a sip test is not an accurate indicator of how people actually respond to a product like a cola because you're not basing how much you actually like that cola on one sip. You're basing it actually on how much you enjoy a whole can or glass of it. Yeah. And in this case, sweetness is nice in a sip. But if the sweetness is overpowering, people mm. actually don't like that. That's interesting. In a whole can of something. And yeah. for that reason, Coke actually still prevails to this day. And yeah. so his point was a blind sip test is actually not a helpful metric. You need to test it on how people actually experience be, it. Yeah, it has home. to be more robust. Yeah. And anyway, that was a really wild side tangent to say. You got to check the know. parameters. Yeah, you know, you got to really be clear on what's going on because otherwise mm. you get wacky things like exactly. new coke <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> you know what else is wacky what's wacky some verses in the bible <laughs> yeah there are a few there are real head scratchers <laughs> and we've looked at we've looked at a few of those yes we have and today we're going to look at another one i'd love to hear it we're going to look at another weird wacky verse in one of paul's letters 
And I do say weird and wacky with all reverence, of course. I'm not <laughs> trying to denigrate scripture. I, I mean, I don't think he. I don't think he'd mind. I don't think he'd take it personally. He might. I maybe could imagine him glaring at our tomfoolery <laughs> yeah, from I time could, to time. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. On the whole, though, I think he'd kind of get it. Like, yeah. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and I mean, even Peter himself said, and as we are fond of pointing out, yes. that there are some things that Paul wrote that are particularly hard to understand and <laughs> yes. ignorant, and unstable, twist them to their own destruction. You know, weird, um, wacky stuff. Right? Admit, amidst my favorite verses, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Paul would have an opinion on that verse? I mean, I'm sure he'd. Now, I could be, I could picture him being like, yeah, you're right. Okay. You know, better than a bruised ego. That's a healthy way to approach. <laughs> I would hope he didn't. You know what I mean? I'd hope he could take it in stride. Like, yeah, there are some interesting points. And even you get an example like in First Corinthians where apparently the Corinthians misunderstood him uh. on a point in an earlier letter where he says, he apparently had said something about not associating with the sexually immoral. Mm-hmm. And then he has to come back and correct their understanding of it because he says, now concerning what I wrote you about sexual immorality, I did not at all mean go out from the world because if you're going to stop associating with everyone who was sexually immoral, that means like you have to go basically sequester yourself yeah. in, a, in a cloister, right? right? So I didn't mean that. I was talking about those who claim the title of Christian. So even then you get this like implicit admission that, oh, I guess I wasn't very clear in my initial instructions to you on what that meant. So today's verse, I'm sure, would also be included in that that bit. And ironically, it comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. Mm. It is found in the 15th chapter in the 29th verse, and it reads thus. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Man, okay. <laughs> so without context. Some weird necro. I mean, right? Like and, and like without thinking too much about this, it sounds actually a lot like the whole Catholic treasury of merit yeah. or something like that. Like on the, the account of someone else. Like what is, I don't you know. You are how. permitted entrance into the sacred place. Yeah, it's like, it kind of implies that, oh yeah, naturally, this is a thing that happens. This is the thing yeah. we're talking about. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't signal that it's strange in this yeah. verse. And I'm sitting here thinking like, is it? Is this normal? What are, how casual is this whole thing? I don't recall making an announcement slide at church about baptisms for the dead. Or you know, unless I'm missing something. It does sound like a lot of fun to do that, but... <laughs> we just announced, you know, hey, we got living person baptisms on the 29th, and next week will be baptisms for the dead, so if you if that's a thing, you know... Oh, man. Yeah, no, so we do have here yet another Pauline assertion that has caused no small amount of interpretive mayhem, mm. because, I mean, just that statement, people being baptized on behalf of the yeah, dead. It's like, a weird phrase. Yeah, what in the Blue Blazes is actually going on here? And, uh... There are quite a few possible answers to that question. And we could take it very straight up, right? Very obviously on its face. And we could do what the Mormons actually do, which is we could literally perform proxy or vicarious baptism of a living person on behalf of a dead person. The Mormon church does this. That's interesting. This is a real thing they do. You can read about it on their website. It's odd when you say, here's the thing about spiritual life, and I'm going to add the word vicarious to it. (laughs) That's already very strange. Already very, very odd. And uh, this baptism, according to the Mormons, grants the deceased in the spirit world an opportunity to convert to Mormonism and be welcomed into the fold. Uh How nice. Um, Okay. I mean, this is really just like me accepting Christ on behalf of my pets when I was a child because I tried it. I decidedly would not ask for Paul's opinion on that decision. Um, that's what it feels like. I'll do this for you. Okay. I didn't You ask. reject the Lord? No problem. 
I do it for thee. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, the Mormons are doing that. And of course, the problem with that is multifold when you actually read sure. the scriptures because, one, neither Paul nor anyone else in scripture ever talks about baptisms in terms that are congenial to that reading. Right. Like, you read all the other passages about baptism, and there's nothing that supports the idea that you can perform a vicarious baptism for someone who's dead. But also, second, in the earliest years of the church, the fathers condemned the Gnostics for the practice of vicarious baptism. Ooh. They condemned them okay. for this very thing. That's a strong argument. Yeah, it would be one thing if you read, oh yeah, some churches practice this, but instead it's actually, oh no, we're condemning the people. Yeah. We're doing it like, this is not correct. This is not in alignment with the faith. And then also on that note, there's no record of vicarious baptism in scripture itself. Mm. Like it just, that never happens. Lots of accounts of baptism in the book of Acts. Sure. Paul talks about those he baptized in first Corinthians, but you never, never get any account. And those first days would have been the time to do it. It's exactly right. Because you're thinking, wow, my, my Jewish relative is blatantly rejecting the Messiah or mm. my Gentile friend is still an immoral pagan. <laughs> yeah. I need to do this for them. You know, it's like, man, if this is actually possible, why aren't we just being baptized yeah. for everybody? Here's my list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it actually is this weird, you know, if you look back at the grossest abuses of indulgences in the Middle Ages, mm. where it was like, oh, yeah, you can go to Rome and climb the stairs and say the paternoster and, you know, Uncle Albert will be sprung from purgatory after you've done that. It's like, oh, yeah, just go do that for all your relatives and you're fine, right? So all that being said, here's a general rule when it comes to reading scripture. If you encounter one strange, difficult verse that is hard to interpret, let the clearer scriptures control your interpretation of the more obscure scriptures, mm. right? So don't rewrite your entire theology of baptism, which is hopefully founded upon a clearer text like Romans 6, 3 through 4. Don't rewrite your whole theology of baptism because you read a seemingly bizarre text like 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Okay, just, just don't do that. Let the clearer verses decipher the more obscure verses. Yeah. At the very least, I'd be looking for more context or like... Maybe Maybe even commentaries. Yes, absolutely. Something, yes. Something a little, yes. <laughs> to give me a little more clarity on, on the one outlier rather than making that one outlier my new life first. Yeah. <laughs> Ethan comes with like a bunch of exhumed corpses to church. Like, what are you, Ethan, what are, what are you doing? First, first Corinthians 15, 29 is my life first. It's, <laughs> I'm, here to, I'm here to live out my faith. Just, uh, <laughs> fill the baptismal. <laughs> do, do it. <laughs> yeah. So having said that, and to your point, Lots of folks, when you come across a question like that about a weird verse in scripture, I can assure you, you're not the first. Oh, yeah. Lots of people across the literally thousands of years of church history have been dealing with this. So there are lots of people you can go to who have thought about this deeply, meditated on it, and have come up with good and reasonable answers and interpretations. And in addition to that, you can often find helpful clarification in the immediate context, yeah. right? And so that's what we can even do right now. The whole of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the physical bodily resurrection of Christians. And specifically, it's about the hope that the resurrection gives us and how absolutely central the resurrection is to our faith. And Paul was dealing with this because there were some folks at Corinth who were apparently saying there was no resurrection from the dead. It's very inconvenient. It just didn't happen. Yeah, that really, really puts the kibosh on a lot of things. And listen to how emphatic Paul is in these seven verses in 1 Corinthians 
15, 12 through 19. Okay, I'm going to read them all because you're going to hear a lot of stuff repeated. And I just want to hear how emphatic he is. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mm -hmm. Implication being because, gosh, if none of this is true, why are we enduring all the stuff we're enduring? Like, why, why are we denying ourselves so many things? So Paul is hammering home the reality of bodily resurrection and basically saying, look, there's actually no resurrection. What the heck are we even doing? Yeah. Right? He did choose the longest way to say it. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Verses 13 and 16 are the same verse. <laughs> Almost like, verbatim, actually. Almost word for word. It's really making sure it sticks. <laughs> like, uh, do you get it? <laughs> did you hear me the first time? I've got it again. Just wait. No. Just in case you were dozing. <laughs> To say I it do, one more time. I do appreciate the way you read that, though. I'm like, you have my attention. You, you can sense kind of the it. exasperation <laughs> yes. of what's happening here. Yes. So given that context, I myself, personally, am ready to accept two possible interpretations of verse 29. And the first is that Paul is simply arguing rhetorically. And in this case, that would mean that there are apparently some folks in Corinth who are baptizing living people on behalf of the deceased, mm. right? And if that is indeed the case then Paul is arguing, look, if you guys are actually saying there's no resurrection, what the heck are you doing baptizing people on behalf of the dead? Because if there is no resurrection, the dead are gone and done forever, and there's no point going through that. Right, it's meaningless. Like, why are you doing that? You're acting inconsistently, Yeah, would be yeah. his point, if that's the case. That fits pretty neatly. Yeah, and I'm, I'm totally willing and ready to accept that. I think that's a very viable and reasonable interpretation of that mm-hmm. verse. Now, the second one takes a little more thought and thematic connection, but... If it's true, what Paul was actually talking about here is normal Christian baptism. Okay. Just people being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he says people are being baptized on behalf of the dead, what he's saying is more akin to, if there's no resurrection, why are you baptized on account of the dead? Would be more like it. Why are you allowing the words of the prophets and your fellow believers who have already died and Christ himself, all dead and gone according to you if there's no resurrection, Why are you allowing their words to compel you to receive baptism, which is also a picture of being raised to newness of life? The resurrection (laughs) is built into baptism. Good point, good point. Why are you doing this? And as scholars Rosna and Campa state, the two biblical scholars, if the dead are not the dead in general, but particular Christians who had left their marks on others who later converted to the faith, the idea could be people who are baptized as part and parcel of their conversion on account of the influence of believers who are now deceased. So basically, if the second option works, we would paraphrase the verse like this to sum it up. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them? Okay. That would be more yeah. the scheme. That, that did take me a minute, but I do like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I am following you. I think either feels pretty comfortable, honestly. Mm-hmm. They don't even feel wildly opposed, at least as, as they, they both get to the heart of the motivation of the practice, what you're right. doing, and, and hopefully guide a more thoughtful, conscious approach. Exactly. And I think however you land on this verse, or if you're like, it's just too weird, it's just too bizarre <laughs> for me to even, like, I just don't know what I think, like, None of this sounds right. It's all just so far out or whatever interpretation you might find most compelling. I think we can agree that the main point still ends up coming down to this, given the context of the whole chapter. The reality of future bodily resurrection changes how we live in the present Mm. and is necessary for our faith to actually be real. So Paul makes the same point another way when he says in verse 30, just the next verse down, why are we in danger every hour? In other words, if the resurrection isn't real, why am I subjecting myself to the persecutions and sufferings of the faith? (laughs) He famously catalogs the list of sufferings he endured in 2 Corinthians, where he's like, I've been a day and a night adrift at sea. I've received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. However many times I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been hungry, thirsty, cold, all these things, you know, in danger from bandits, robbers, Gentiles, Jews, persecuted by my own countrymen, run out of tent. Like, why am I doing all of this? If there's actually no future hope of a real resurrection, the answer to that is uh, I shouldn't be doing it. In fact, later in this chapter, he says, again, if there's no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right? Like, yeah, just soak it up right now. Do what, you know, we're so fond of doing in America. Make basically the goal of your life to be as comfortable as possible and to enjoy as many bodily pleasures as you can. Mm. Because once you're done, you're done. That's (laughs) it, right? But his point is that that's not the case. Christ is raised from the dead. We will share in his resurrection one day, and we will experience that newness of life, and therefore our sufferings and our labors are not in vain. Mm. So yeah, even if you don't come down on an exactly defined interpretation of that verse, the point, I think, still stands in light of all that. So there's another great mystery completely solved. I love it. In a brief 20-minute roundabout with the heart Horizon Church Podcast. (laughs) That's us. Because that's how we do it. That's it. (laughs) And thank you, as always, for listening. If you found this content helpful, invigorating, or perhaps it just raised more questions than it did answers, and you want (laughs) to share this with someone who you think might be able to help you understand it better, you can share it with your friends, and you can leave us an honest five-star review in the Apple Podcast platform if you did find it helpful. And uh, if you didn't find it helpful and it, it did raise a lot of questions... I mean, you don't have to leave an honest five-star yeah. review. You could just you could, you could uh, send us an email. Yeah, exactly. Instead, <laughs> <laughs> you can email us at podcast at horizonschurch.net or you can interact with us on social media. So thank you as always for listening. Don't go baptizing yourself for the dead. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.